Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Dreams of a Christmas Credo. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 19, 2010, the fourth Sunday of Advent. Come and save us, the psalmist implores God in Psalm 80, verse 2. And in a call and response separated by a thousand years, the gospel this week proclaims, He will save his people. Matthew 1.21 That's the Christmas good news, that the birth of a son signals the redemption of the world. Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself. Matthew's story of the birth and infancy of Jesus includes five dreams. Four of those dreams were by Joseph, and the fifth one by the pagan Magi. In his first dream, Matthew 1.20, an angel spoke to Joseph in words that echo down to us today. Don't be afraid. Joseph was caught between the public disgrace of a pregnancy out of wedlock and the pain of a private divorce of Mary. But we read, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and endured the public scorn. In Joseph's second dream, Matthew 2.12, God warned him that King Herod intended to kill Jesus, and instructed the young family to flee to Egypt for safety. This is the same Herod whom the pagan magi were warned to avoid in the fifth dream, the political ironies in this flight to Egypt are remarkable. The infant Son of God fled as a displaced refugee to a foreign country, Egypt, Israel's sworn and symbolic enemy that had oppressed the Hebrews for 430 years, the place where Pharaoh himself had unleashed an infanticide against the Israelite children, Exodus chapter 1 became a refuge for Jesus. In his third dream a few years later, Matthew 2.19, God instructed Joseph that Herod had died. So the young family returned to Judea in Israel. But after learning that Herod's son Archelaus reigned in place of his father Herod, Joseph feared for their lives. And so in the fourth dream, Matthew 2.22, God instructed him to move his family yet again, this time to Nazareth of Galilee. Four of these five dreams warn of King Herod's plans to kill the baby Jesus. Why does the birth announcement of Jesus include such an overt and ominous political overtones? A clash between a Roman governor and a peasant baby? In addition to the four Gospels, there's a fifth birth narrative in the New Testament. I've never heard this read at Christmas time, but it illuminates the other four and the confrontation between Jesus and Herod. This other birth narrative takes place in heaven rather than on earth. In contrast to Luke's bucolic imagery of a baby born in a barn, this fifth birth announcement explodes with apocalyptic imagery from a cosmic perspective. 
In Revelation chapter 12, 1, we read about a woman crying out in labor pains as she gives birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. An enormous red dragon stands in front of her spread legs so that he might devour the child the moment it was born. The baby in the barn would be the ruler of the nations, and therein resides the clash of two kings. For the earliest believers, Rome was that beastly dragon, the incarnation not of divine love, but of human tyranny. What had Rome done to deserve Revelation's outrageous imagery and opprobrium? Didn't Rome give us highways and aqueducts, a language and architecture, the rule of law and the Pax Romana? Yes, it did, but they also martyred Christians for 300 years. Even more disturbing than those martyrdoms were the claims made by the Caesars of that day. Roman emperors assumed divine titles like the Son of God, Lord, and even God. Consider this inscription from Asia Minor from about 9 BC that describes Caesar Augustus. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who, being sent to us as a savior, has put an end to war. <clears throat> the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. And in fact, the word good news here is euangelion, the gospel. Both Joseph's earthly dreams about Herod and John's cosmic imagery of a savage dragon provoke the question, who is the ultimate lord and king? Whose birth, in the words of that ancient inscription, is the gospel for the whole world? Is the Roman Caesar lord and god, or is the baby of Bethlehem? Is the good news that of political power or of love incarnate? Revelation 1.5 confesses that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and so Herod was right to be threatened. As Marcus Borg writes, Rome designates all domination systems organized around power, wealth, seduction, intimidation, and violence. In whatever historical form it takes, ancient or modern, Empire is the opposite of the kingdom of God as disclosed in Jesus. Come and save us. Political power, whether in ancient Rome or modern America, is only one of many false gods that offer a gospel of salvation. Consumerism promises fulfillment, but alienates us from our true selves. Propaganda, regardless of its content, tries to integrate us into its own narrative. The alternative gods to which we bow down are almost endless. Sex without love, wealth without generosity, work with no sense of call, knowledge without wisdom. The renegade priest and peace activist Daniel Berrigan, born 1921, thus repudiates our many false gods in his poem called Credo. 
I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by the sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the Gospel of God in the epistle for this week. It's a gospel that deconstructs every other false hope. And it's hard not to read a note of irony when Paul directs his invitation in Romans 1-7 to all who live in Rome. For books this week, I review Waiting for Superman, How We Can Save America's Failing Public Schools. It's edited by Carl Weber. New York Public Affairs, 2010, 279 pages. The depth of dysfunction in our public schools is now well known through any number of familiar sound bites. The United States ranks at the bottom of 30 developed countries in math and science. Only about half of our African American and Latino students and about 76% of whites graduate from high school. Educational experts disagree about fundamental issues, and spending on education has more than doubled in the last 40 years. These statistics have drastic economic ramifications for our country, but even more important is the ethical issue of a basic civil right. A child's hope for a decent education shouldn't rest in the luck of a lottery ball. This book was published in conjunction with Davis Guggenheim's film of the same title. I expected it to be little more than a promotional piece, and it is that, but much of the book is well worth reading. Ten different authors involved in education each contribute a chapter. There are numerous bright spots and innovative reforms underway, like Jeffrey Canada's Harlem Children's Zone and the KIPP network of charter schools. Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook has pledged $100 million to the Newark schools. But these efforts are hardly scalable in a way that could serve our 56 million K-12 students in over 100,000 schools. There are about 5,000 charter schools, but a 2009 study at Stanford University found that only 17% of them outperform comparable public schools. And then there's Michelle Ray, maverick reformer as chancellor of the Washington, D.C. public schools. But she resigned after three years in October 2010. Everyone gets their say in this book, including Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, which teachers' unions were vilified in Guggenheim's movie. But Weingarten wonders, when kids fail, why are teachers the targets? What about staff, administrators, politicians who slash budgets, policymakers, local school boards, 
and parents. After all, a child spends only about a quarter of a day in school. Eric Hanushek of Stanford argues that family is not destiny, but Weingarten points out that family socioeconomic status is still the number one predictor of student achievement. Perhaps in this case, correlation is linked with causation, which becomes very scary when you consider that almost half of our 56 million public school children live in or near poverty, or in homes where English is their second language. It's no wonder that in his chapter, Bill Gates says that the reform of our public schools is the toughest challenge his foundation has ever tackled. The title of the book, Waiting for Superman, edited by Carl Weber. And for film this week, I reviewed the film Waiting for Superman, 2010. A child's hope for a decent education shouldn't rest in the luck of the lottery, but that's the fate of the five children in this documentary film by Davis Guggenheim, who also made An Inconvenient Truth. Loosely based around the five families of Anthony, Francisco, Bianca, Daisy, and Emily, Guggenheim also marshals facts, figures, interviews with important reformers like Michelle Ray in Washington, D.C., Jeffrey Canada of Harlem, and Bill Gates. We all know that too many public schools are academic sinkholes or dropout factories. We also know that some charter schools, which are private schools funded by public money, have done a good job. But even this film admits that only one in five charter schools makes a significant change in student performance. And at any rate, charter schools are hardly scalable. Guggenheim spreads the responsibilities a little bit, but for the most part he blames bad teachers and the unions, and suggests that alls we need is great teachers. I hope this film draws attention to a huge social problem, but for deeper insights about complex questions like the relationship between poverty and education, you'll need better resources. And for that, you might want to see the book of 14 essays, which I just reviewed, also by the same title, Waiting for Superman. And for the fourth Sunday in Advent for poetry, we've published a poem by John Donne called Nativity. John Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. Nativity. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb, now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent, weak enough now unto the world to come. But oh, for thee, for him, hath the end no room? Yet lay him in this stall, and from the Orient stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effect of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eyes, how he which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high, that would have need to be pitied by thee? Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go, with his kind mother, who partakes thy woe.
John Dunn, Nativity. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 19th, 2010, the fourth Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.